We as a church are in the book of Colossians together. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, just a couple of things. So go ahead and flip over in your phone or your Bible or whatever to Colossians chapter 3. And while you're flipping, uh, we're in this series uh, uh, looking at the letter of Colossians. Uh, and this letter that Paul wrote to a church he did not plant. And so kind of some of the backstory for this letter is uh, somebody, this guy named Epaphras, gets saved at one of Paul's like essential like gospel rallies, basically. He's in Ephesus, and this guy hears the message and the good news of, good news of Jesus. He gets saved, and then he takes that message back to his hometown of Colossae, which is this little rural town 80 or 90 miles from Ephesus, kind of this bigger metropolitan area. And, he, and he, he gets saved, he takes the message back, and he starts this new church. And about eight to ten years later, he's visiting Paul in Rome and asking for some help, some advice, some encouragement with this new church that has started. And so that's where we get the book of Colossians. Paul's writing back to this church. He didn't plant, but he knows through this one guy, Epaphras, which we think is one of their, their pastors. And he's dealing with all kinds of crazy stuff as he's writing this letter. He's dealing with polytheism, just this culture that will worship multiple gods. And so the temptation when people heard the good news about Jesus would have been to just add Jesus into the list of gods they were already worshiping. Paul is fighting the, the legalistic Jewish Christians who are trying to add things on to the salvation and the good news of Jesus, saying, okay, cool, now that you're saved, here are all, all these extra things you have to do for God to love you or God to accept you or whatever. And they were also fighting this temptation for the people in Colossae to find their hope in the Roman Empire. At this time, if you were a Roman citizen living within the bounds of the Roman Empire, life was generally pretty good for you. It was an incredibly peaceful time. There were these revolutionary laws and kind of way of doing government that were taking hold, and, and it was easy to place your hope in Rome as an institution instead of Jesus. And so Paul, as he's writing back to the city and this new church that's been planted there, he's combating a couple of those different things. The poly Theism, the, the temptation into legalism, or adding things on to the salvation of Jesus, and finding their hope not in Jesus, but in the Roman Empire. And what Paul has been doing, his solution to all of these problems, has been to lift Jesus high. To like, to elevate their eyes, to literally like tell them at one point, set your minds and your eyes on the things that are above. To lift their eyes and saying, you guys need to see Jesus as the solution for every single one of life's problems. So he's been elevating them. He's been unpacking theology about Jesus. He's been including worship songs about Jesus in this letter. And now we're in this portion in chapter three where Paul is applying all of that stuff. He's applying all this who Jesus is and what he has done and who that makes us into how we live our lives together. And so chapter 3 starts with these couple of verses that says, Paul's saying, set your minds on the things above. And then he goes to flesh out how we actually do that. Well, put off the things of your old life. Put on the things of your new life. And then where we're at right now is a bit of a case study, if you will. So what Paul does is he goes on this putting off, putting on, and then in these couple of verses, he says, and this is how this applies to some of the most common relationships that you have. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. And last week we dealt with husbands and wives, and so if you missed last week or you want to hear what we had to say about that, go check out our podcast. And next week is slaves and masters, but today is how do parents and children relate to each other. And the premise of this case study 
has been because Jesus has changed how you relate to God, because Jesus has changed our relationship with God, all of our relationships on earth must change for Jesus too. They have to look different. When you come to know Jesus, your marriage has to look different. When you come to know Jesus, how you parent your kids has to look different. And next week, as you come to Jesus, this common institution of slavery and then the broader kind of workplace environment has to look different as well. So last week we looked at husbands and wives, and today we're talking parents and children. Now one of the things we've also been doing is giving you guys a bit of resources to go a little bit further, because as much as Paul uses this as an example of what he's talking about, he doesn't do a deep dive for us in Colossians. And so last week we gave you some, uh, a few resources on, on marriage and uh, the marital life, and this week I want to give you guys a resource on parenting. It is written by friends of ours actually up in Portland, Phil and Diane Comer. Uh, the book is Ray passionate Jesus followers. We actually have some on our info table. We think it's one of the best parenting books out there, period. It is phenomenal. And so if you don't have this, you would like it, you can pick up one on your way out. We also have like links on our website as well. But they do a phenomenal job unpacking what the goal and the heartbeat of parenting in Christ is. And so they're friends of ours. We love this. And then as always, if you do have questions at any point, uh, we'll do a follow-up podcast if you guys have questions. So at any point, if I say something that that triggers you or uh, is interesting to you or you want to learn more about, text in that question and we would love to get that answered for you. And so that number will be up on the screen the whole time if you are interested. But can I just be a little bit honest with you? I have a few hesitations about preaching this particular couple of verses from Colossians 3. One of them is that my oldest kid is three and a half years old which means there's a whole lot of parenting that Sherry and I have yet to do with our kids. And so there's a bit of insecurity in speaking from a place of lack of experience in our own personal life. And my other concern is when we talk about things like parenting, we immediately jump to, okay, how do I do this better? How do I fix my kids? How do I solve like whatever the problem is this week with my kids? How do I tackle that? And I think what I want to do before we even touch either one of those things is I want to remind us that nothing in your life, nothing in your life is going to reveal that you need the grace and mercy of Jesus more than parenting. I mean, if if you just got married and you think that is hard, wait till you throw a third one in the mix, right? If you're like single and you're, and you're dating someone, you think that is hard, like wait till you get one step further. Like each step in our lives somehow reveals more of us that needs to be changed by the grace and mercy of Jesus. And parenting is no exception to that. And so I just want to start with this reminder that like when we talk about something like this, we are all going to Jesus for help. None of us have this like dialed into a T Even people who have kids that are now raising kids, they would still say they have room to grow here. And I would love that to be all of our posture going in. And also that I'm not standing up here having figured this one out either. I mean, most of you guys know my kids. And like, maybe some days we think we have it figured out. And then, you know, a day like yesterday happens where they like blow through naps because we're at the beach too long. And then are like whiny and cry all day. I'm like, man, what happened to like these rock star kids we had in the morning? It shifts from day to day. So I don't have this figured out. Sherry doesn't have this figured out. But what I can do today, regardless of my personal experience, is take you to scripture and see what, uh, what Paul has to say about this and ultimately what God has to say through scripture about this. 
And one more thing, just to set up our time a little bit. Almost never do you see uh, biblical writers, especially in the New Testament, write about parenting without first writing about marriage. Have you guys noticed that before, especially in Paul's letters? Even, even where we're at in Colossians 3, he starts with husbands and wives and said, okay, now that we've dealt with that as a foundation, let's talk about how you guys raise kids together. It's almost as if your ability to raise kids hinges on the husband and wife being good. Hinges on the husband and wife being rooted in their role and their value under God. That their goals are aligned. It almost as if your ability to parent kids starts with this loving, giving, sacrificial, uh, give your life up kind of love that the husband has for his wife. And this kind of, this all-in voluntary submission to this common calling that we are on together that the wife brings to the table. It's almost as if those things have to be a bedrock before biblical writers even talk about parenting. And so I just want to reiterate, if you missed last week, go listen to last week. That is our foundation for how we approach what we're doing today as we're talking about parenting. With that said... We don't live in a perfect world. Like, even if you guys were trying to like, okay, so I'm going to, first step in good parenting is to like, we're going to shore up our marriage. We're going to make sure our marriage is on a good foundation. Chances are you will screw that up at some point as well, right? Like, you guys are not living this out consistently every day. I'm not living this out consistently every day. We live in a broken, imperfect world. And so chances are you're going to disagree with your spouse at some point if you are married. And that's going to leak into other areas in your life as well. And so I feel like we just have to kind of acknowledge that we are broken in this. And while, we're, while Paul sets really high bars for how the family life works, we also have to start with a ton of grace for each other in this as well. To say we're not going to get this perfect. We don't live in a broken world. Right out of the gate, we're in need of grace and mercy from God as we broach this. Okay, that's... Most of my disclaimers for how we're approaching today. The other lingering disclaimer is kind of the elephant in the room that not everyone here has kids. Like last week, not everyone is married, and that is okay. For a number of reasons, if you are single, if you don't yet have kids, if you are empty nesters, there are reasons for you to listen to what Paul is saying here first. So you don't have to like totally check out for the next half an hour or so, because what we're saying here and what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 Like, it's not only limited to parenting. There's nothing in here that we're going to talk about today that can't be applied to other relationships in your lives. Just like last week, there's nothing in there that can't be applied to other relationships you have with friends, with families, with coworkers, with classmates, whatever. There is, there is stuff, there is truth for us to grind out of here together, whether you have kids or not. And so I just want to call your attention to that. But also there is something unique about the church. There's something unique about how the church deals with kids. It's a bit more of a village than it is a collection of of siloed off families, if you will. There's this really peculiar verse in the book of Acts as the new church is just getting its sea legs. And it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, traditionally, we would go and say, oh, yeah, they, they sold stuff and then they had it all in common. But It doesn't tell us they sold stuff until the very next verse. Before they sold everything off, and it's not not that they didn't share material possessions. They absolutely did. 
but there is this sense that they shared all of life together. Like, it's not relegated to, I sold my property and then I have money to spread it around. It's, we are doing life together. There is some commonality in how we approach our jobs, how we approach our marriages, and how we approach parenting. And we're all into that. I hope if you guys see one of my kids doing something stupid out here in the hallway, you're one of the people that knocks them on the side and say, what are you doing? Like, we, we are all in this together as a family. So even if you do not have yet, yet have kids, you already have had kids and they're out of the house, or maybe kids are not in your future, you still have a parenting-esque role to play as part of the church because we're all in this together. One of the beautiful pictures of this is, is our community group. We have a community group uh, that, that meets, uh, we're off during the summertime, but that meets either at our house or Matt and Alyssa's house. And uh, some of us have kids, some of us don't have kids. And uh, what I love about that is as we're trying to like, you know, have like five minutes of sanity together as the adults and we put on a movie in the other room for the kiddos, like we, we, someone has to go knock heads every once in a while in that room because they're wrestling too hard or things are getting rowdy or they're punching holes in walls or, or something like that. And so someone has to go in and deal with that. And what I love is it's not always a parent that goes and deals with those kids. Like we just kind of take a vote and elect someone to go in to like lay down the law in there and someone goes. And sometimes it's, it's one of the parents and sometimes it's someone who doesn't have kids who goes in. But we tell our kids is no matter what adult comes in, you're listening to them. And there's this like kind of weird collective parenting that starts to happen with our little community group that is kind of amazing. That if like Ella is doing something she's not supposed to, I know I can go help and correct her in that moment and John's not going to yell at me later. Hey, why are you talking to my kid? No, there's this, this sense of we are, in fam- we are doing this together as a family. If my son Truman is doing something he's not supposed to, I expect that John, if he sees it, will go over and, and correct him in that moment. And so even if you don't yet have kids, the stuff that Paul is talking about is for you as well. So maybe you don't have kids yet, and this might help prepare you for kids one day. It might help prepare you to raise kids one day. Maybe you never have kids. Maybe kids are not a part of your future. Maybe you've already had your kids, and they're out of the house raising their own kids. But doing life together in community as a church, this means this is for you as well. Which means if my son is being a knucklehead and I don't see it, I hope one of you guys step in and help him out. Okay, so whether you have kids, you're going to have kids, you can't have kids, or you already have kids, no matter your situation, we need to hear Paul's words today, which are found in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Go ahead and put that up, Max. It's our text for today. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Two verses. It's easy morning, right? Let's dig into the first one right here. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, right off the bat, if you are paying attention to what has happened in verses 18 and 19, you'll notice these two verses are similar but different. They're similar in a couple of ways where Paul starts off with the historically marginalized first. Right, just like he starts with wives last time and now he's starting with children, he's starting with the group that has historically been marginalized or oppressed or not even counted in these sorts of instructions. And then he gets to the historically dominant party second. What he's doing there is elevating their value. He's giving them a place at the table as he's trying to work out how a Christ-like family lives together. 
But you'll notice it's different because where verse 18 said, wives, submit to your husbands, and we unpacked what all of that means, he uses a different word here. And it's not just a different English translation. It's actually a different Greek word that's used here as well. So if I can nerd out on you for just a minute, uh, these are the two words. Submit, hupatasso, is this voluntary submission, this two-sided relationship where both parties are equal and one of the parties is saying, I'm submitting what may be my will for the sake of our common calling. This is a partnership. But this one we have right here, hupakoo, is obey. And it's these two words that are mashed together. It means listen and obey. Which we might be able to take that word directly translated as like, listen under your parents. Or more modernly, listen to your parents and do it. Be hearers and doers. Does that sound familiar? And so right off the bat, this this word is a little bit different. It's a little bit more one-sided than when Paul is talking with husbands and wives. It's two equal partners working out this life together. And here, this is very, very one-sided. There is a party that must heed respect to the other party. So Paul was typically writing to to kids that were still at home. Uh, And so if you're still living with mom and dad, this applies to you. Now, there's a whole different conversation about our relationship with mothers and fathers once we're out of the house where this word honor comes in from the Ten Commandments, but we're not going into that. Paul's talking about kids who are still hanging at home. He says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So implicit here in this command is not just a hearing and doing, but there's some motivation here. It's, it's doing it with the right attitude. It's not a begrudgingly obey because I have to, but a joyful obedience because I know this is good for me, it's good for them, and it pleases the Lord. This is key. This kind of obedience is what we want to cultivate as parents in our children. And I will say, even if you don't have children, this is the kind of obedience we want to cultivate in ourselves to the Lord, Right? joyful obedience because we know his commands are usually better than our will. I say usually, always. He knows what he is doing. As Steve likes to remind us, God is way better at this life than you are. And when we obey him, we start to walk into how we were supposed to live. And life may not always be easier, but life is most certainly better. This is key. We don't want to cultivate begrudging obedience in our children or in ourselves, but a joyful heart for obedience. This joyful obedience, knowing that the one to whom we're obeying knows better than us and is ultimately looking out for our best. He wants good for you and I. I want my son Calvin to joyfully obey me when I tell him to hold my hand as we cross the street. Like, either way, he's holding my hand. And one of the ways is I'm dragging him across the street and he's screaming and kicking, or the other is he's like happy singing a little theme song to himself as we're walking across the street. Either way, he's holding my hand, but in that moment, one of those two options is better. I want him to know that, that in this moment, I know better than him. Cars don't see him. And so if he just walks across the street by himself, he is more likely to get hit by a car. Cars see me because I'm awkward and tall. And if I'm holding my son with me, he will not get hit by a car. I want him to joyfully obey me there because I am looking out for his betterment. Obedience throughout Scripture 
is God's grace for the good life. Let's look back to the Old Testament a little bit. We have the Ten Commandments. Part of the Ten Commandments is this command to honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the Lord, and that the Lord your God is giving you. Again, we're reminded of this in Deuteronomy. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long. And check this out, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul brings this up as he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's the only of the Ten Commandments. The first one, Paul says, that a specific promise is attached to it. There's something beautiful happening when the parent-child relationship is in sync. There is a sense of blessing from the Lord that you step into when the parent-child relationship is in sync here. The point is, here we have a simple and powerful command to all children to truly, from the heart, obey their parents. And a clear call for the parents to cultivate this kind of obedience in them. Neglect of this command brings great sorrow, especially if your parents, especially if, if your parents with, with older kids and you've seen this play out over a long period of time. But if obeyed, it brings fullness, some kind of unique blessing that is happening here. Now, chances are most of you except a handful I see, are not children living at home with your parents, right? Most of us are parents or soon-to-be parents or adults that have parent-like relationships with other people. And so rather than spending a lot of time honing in on why children should obey, I want to spend actually the rest of our time talking about how we as parents cultivate this heart for obedience in the kids and the children around us. So I want to flip this around and talk about how we cultivate this heart of obedience. Because as our friends Phil and Diane say in this book, we train our children to obey us so that they will grow up with the inherent reflexive ability to choose to obey God rather than their own impulses. You have walked in this before. People you know have walked in this kind of self-destructive pattern of life where it's always about them and every decision is about making themselves happier or easier or more comfortable or whatever rather than obeying God and we know that does not end well for people. Life is much harder that way. The Proverbs say the way of a sinner is harder And so we train our children. This starts at day one. We train our children to obey us, not so we have well-behaved kids at Trader Joe's, which is convenient, but not the end goal, right? Not that we have like little supplicants walking around worshiping the ground we walk on. That's not the point. We train our children to obey so they grow up with this instinctive, reflexive obedience to God. To know that we as parents mirror image how God leads us. And we can set them up for a life of success in obeying God or not. So parents, really clearly, your job is to cultivate a heart for obedience in your children. To cultivate this default posture 
where they know their parents and God know better and are looking out for their good. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us the next step here. And it's kind of a, Paul's sometimes a bad news first kind of guy. So he gives us what not to do first at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, there are, if you guys have hung around me, you know I have some beef with the English translation occasionally. So we're going to continue to turn out for a couple of minutes so you guys get a fuller picture of what is happening here. There are two words that don't do us any favors in the English translation that we are using today. And the first one is the word fathers. Now, in this Greek word, it's, it's pater, and it's a masculine noun. So if you guys have done any language study, you know a masculine noun can mean one of two things. It can either mean talking about the actual male gender person in that setting, or it's also like a lump phrase for both, right? So typically in most languages, the masculine noun is either for the male or for both male and female. And so one of the reasons we know this word is at play here is because in the book of Hebrews, this word in Hebrews chapter 11, pater, is translated as parents. Other places, it's translated as fathers. Now, there's a couple of reasons that it gets translated here into fathers. Uh, one might be it's this, like, subversive nod to tradition Hellenistic cultures where the father was the dominant, like, king-like presence in the house. So it might be sort of a nod to traditional power structures to say, hey, I'm telling you not to do what is normal for you. Provoke your children. So it could be. could be there could be a, a nod to what might be the ultimate authority. Or it could be, it might be the subversive, inclusive word for male and female that went mistranslated. We don't know. The point there is the word can be either translated as fathers or parents. And regardless, Paul's instructions for us today applies to both parents. He's not just talking to fathers. I hope that wasn't like a rabbit trail that you don't care about. But anyway, just so you know, it's helpful here. And he says, fathers, or parentheses, parents, do not provoke your children. So the word provoke might be translated embitter, might be translated exacerbate. It's to make someone resentful and bitter is what's happening here. It's by your conscious or subconscious actions you are cultivating rather than love and joyful obedience, embitteredness, exhaustion. You're cultivating resentfulness in them, stuff that takes root and, and happens over time and even comes to bear over time. He says, don't provoke them. Don't embitter your children. Don't make them resent you by being so harsh with them. Fathers can discourage their kids in a whole number of ways. Parents can discourage their kids in a whole number of ways. And what Paul is doing here is so countercultural, guys. You don't even know how countercultural what Paul is doing, not only by addressing children first, by cutting off an avenue of power and a way fathers would gain submission in the household, would be provoking them, would be overly harsh with them. It's so countercultural. And unlike the dominant thought of his time and place, both in Hellenistic and Roman thought and in Jewish thought and ways of life, where the focus would have been on the power and authority of the father figure in the home, Paul focuses on the responsibility of the parents and assuring that they're cultivating the right kind of obedience by not provoking them. He says, this is your job in life, and I'm going to let you in on how we do this. This is why I believe it is the job of the parent to cultivate a heart for obedience in their children. Kids don't come out of the womb wanting to obey. Do you guys know that? Or is it just my kids? 
Your kids too? Like they don't come out ready to just do everything you say and why and not ask questions and just like roll with it. They have to be taught. They have to be trained. That's why in Ephesians, when Paul gives the same command, he says, don't provoke them, but raise them up and teach them, instruct them. There's an active role that we have to play. We have to teach them. And there are good ways to teach obedience in children. There are bad ways to teach obedience in children. Paul says, don't provoke them. Some of the poor ways we can provoke children is a constant reign of criticism in their life. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever right. A constant irritability or grouchiness, which might be my default MO, is like I'm just constantly annoyed by everything in the world. And if I come home with that posture, then no matter what my kids are doing, nothing will ever be good enough to get me out of a good mood if that's what I'm putting on them. Harsh and over-strict rules, things that are not necessary, capricious inconsistency. Part of your job as parents is to be a rock in your kid's life. Not swaying from one thought to another. Not swaying from one method of discipline to another. Not swaying in what's good and what's bad from day to day. But being consistent. Keeping their children at a distance. Passive parents. I see this a ton too. I feel it. I come home. I'm tired from whatever day I had, and then to come home, it is much easier for me to, like, get something going with our kids than it is to get on the floor and engage with them, to wrestle with them, to ask them about their day. My boys are three and a half and two. Asking them about their day is like pulling teeth, but I want to cultivate that habit that we talk about what happens in our day. Not that I'm going to throw on Moana for you so I can go, like, look on Instagram. These are all ways you can provoke your children And chances are you will not see the bad fruit of this immediately. Over time, these things rot a relationship. And these are the things that we all kind of give into when we're not being intentional. Right? And so if you're identifying with one of these, don't like, oh man, I'm an awful parent. Like, don't take that on. But just know this is what happens to every single one of us in every relationship we have if we are not intentional if we are not being on purpose about asking the Holy Spirit for help in every single moment and searching scriptures for wisdom. This can happen to all of us. And to be clear, Paul is saying we as parents do not negatively motivate our children. Your parents might have done that to you and you're living with the limp from that. That is not what we do to our children. You do not motivate them towards obedience by poking them and jabbing them and criticizing everything and exhausting your kid's spirit. We do not provoke them to anger. And what Paul is getting at here is a household of Christ should be a household of grace, of godly discipline, of mercy, of parents who are submitting to each other, submitting to the Lord, and modeling something insatiable for their kids. We're not just cultivating obedience, but a heart for obedience. And how we parent and how we lead can cultivate obedience, but we want to cultivate a heart posture for obedience, a desire to obey in our children. No matter how you feel, at the end of the day, we have to figure out how to nurture, disciple, discipline, and shape 
our children in a way that does not exacerbate them, does not cause them to be bitter, does not cause them to, to distance themselves from us or from God. Now, how many of your kids like correction? <laughs> yeah. None of them, probably, right? None of them are like craving for you to tell them what they did wrong today. So what Paul is not saying and cannot be saying is don't make them angry. That's not what he's saying. Embitterness over time and anger in the moment are two different things. You guys following me? These are two different things. Your kids will not like when you need to correct them. And they will outburst. They will throw a temper tantrum. They may get angry in the moment. That is to be expected, friends. It's not just my kids. It's your kids too, I bet. But we are to parent in a way that does not cultivate a lifelong pattern of embitterness from our kids to the Lord or to us. So what this verse can't mean is don't make your kids angry. If that's the command, I'm failing like on a daily basis. But there are times you're going to make your kid angry. And the test is saying don't try and make them angry. Don't sow things into their life that will come out in 10 years and they're still holding that grudge with you. Don't try and make them miserable. Don't try and deflate them. Why? Paul says they might become discouraged. There's a great preacher, a guy named John Newton. He's a preacher, he's a hymn writer, and he had kind of an awful life before he came to Christ. And he said this, he said, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. I don't know if that's your guys' experience with your families, your parents, or not. That maybe you knew they loved you because they're supposed to, but they never actually shown it. Let us not become those kind of parents. Phil and Diane Comer again say, your children will become who you tell them you see them becoming. I know that is an awkward sentence, but look at that again. Your children will become who you tell them you see them becoming, which means your words matter. As a parent, your primary job in cultivating this heart for obedience and in raising Jesus' followers in the next generation is to tell them who you see them becoming. What kind of person or personality are you seeing? What kind of giftings from the Holy Spirit are you already seeing in these young people? Call that out. Use lots of I see in you kind of language. This is hard. This is like a discipline we have to cultivate. But as parents, we are encouraging towards our children. We are correcting, we are disciplining, yes, but we are also telling them who we see them becoming because those are the people they will become. If they're constantly never good enough and they have to work for your affection, that's the kind of adults they will be. Nothing will ever be good enough. No one's love will ever be true enough because they think they will always have to work for someone's affection and attention. As you encourage them and telling them and reminding them that you are loved, you are valued in who you are, not what you do, that produces a person later on in life who has a confidence in their identity in Christ and in their family. To know that what they do does not define who they are. Your words matter. Your words have power with your children. This was revolutionary to Sherry and I. 
And we've heard it from, from people. We've heard it from our, our in-laws who've raised six kids and now they're all trying to raise kids. We've heard it from parents we've looked to in our life. We've, we've read this in scripture and for some reason it didn't quite click for us until Calvin started talking. And then like suddenly our words started coming through his mouth. I was like, oh shoot, wait, these people weren't joking. The words we have have power with our kids. They've influence. It shapes who they are, how they think, what they say. And specifically, I mean, I've been talking to parents this whole time, specifically fathers, your words have power. And I'm not talking about cussing here. I'm not talking about language you're using. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about how you talk to your kids matters. Watch your mouth towards your sons. And definitely watch your mouth towards your daughters. I cannot unpack for you enough how powerful your mouth is when it comes to your children. It can absolutely instill in your daughter's self-confidence and safety in a man who will treat her right and encourage her and love her well. Or you can teach her that she is worthless and that what she needs to be is demeaned her entire life. That starts with dad. It starts with your relationship with dad. You can make your son feel safe in how God created him to be. So maybe your son loves soccer. Maybe he loves to dance. It doesn't matter. You can make him feel safe in who God made him to be. Your goal, regardless, is to nurture and love and encourage them with your mouth, with the words you have to say. Dads, your job is to not just put a roof over their head. You need to speak life and blessing into your children. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament, the importance of the fatherly blessing that that transcends from generation to generation to generation. That is not lost. Dads, your words have power. You can and need to speak life and blessing and encouragement into your children and not use your tongue to wound or assault your kids. It has lasting effect. It'll affect how they parent kids one day. And honestly, as maybe an aside, maybe, I don't know what kind of parents you had. Maybe they were fantastic. Maybe they were awful. But whatever it is, you are walking in shaped by how they parented you. And even one of the ways that we can respond to this kind of teaching, and we'll do it in a little bit, and maybe this trickles out into your week or your next couple of weeks, is asking the Lord to stop what has gone from generation to generation. Maybe your mom or your dad abused you or beat you or yelled at you incessantly. That does not have to continue to the next generation. Like there is power in Jesus to stop that kind of generational curse that keeps going and going and going. You have the power in Christ to say, enough, I don't want to live like that. And to ask the Lord to break that whether you already have kids, whether you don't yet have kids, whether you're not even married yet, think about your parents. And if there is something that is unhealthy about that, if there is some way they treated you and abused you that you do not want to pass on to another generation, ask the Lord to break that. We'll have a couple people as we respond later to pray for you if you want to pray through that. We'd love to be praying for you but you do not have to become who your parents were. 
if that, maybe you had phenomenal parents and you're asking, let the blessing keep rolling, you know, like that's okay too. I don't want to be like a total Debbie Downer. Maybe you had phenomenal parents who taught you to love the Lord well, who, who you were raised in this phenomenal household. If that is you, that's incredible and we can all learn from you. And ask the Lord to continue that on to how you raise your kids. But chances are we all walk in with limps and scars from previous generations. No matter how good their, their intentions were, we are not perfect. And we need to ask the Lord, hey, can we do this better with our kids? Lest they become discouraged, is Paul's word. This word discouraged here can be translated into a couple of different things disheartened, dispirited, to be discouraged and quit trying, or probably what captures this phrase the best, broken in spirit. Broken in spirit can come out in a couple of different ways. Most commonly, an irreparable personality or character traits, like things you instill in your kids that just like leak out over time or a turning away from their faith. How you train and parent your kids has lasting impact on their lives and their faith. Parents, you have immense power and influence over the person your son or daughter is becoming. And if you don't yet have kids, if kids are in your future, who you are now is shaping what kind of parent you will be. I think one of the really common misconceptions is like if you're uh, like a single guy and you struggle with looking at porn or you struggle with like being angry and having a really short temper, we think like being married is going to fix that. Like, oh man, once I get married, I won't want to look at porn anymore. Not true. Like being married does not fix all your problems. If you, if you come in carrying limps and baggage from how you were parented and maybe you're, you're angry, you have a really short temper, you outburst all the time, you think, man, I'm not going to do that with my kids but then you actually don't make any changes in your life to reflect that desire, then what happens when your son or daughter does something you don't want to do? It just leaks out of you. Like whether you have kids or not, the person you are right now and the person you are becoming can be shaped and changed by Jesus and his power. It doesn't have to be shaped and changed by this culture alone or by your parents alone or your lack of parents alone. It can be shaped and changed by the power of Jesus. This whole couple of verses, remember, is rooted in what God has already done. All of chapter 3 in Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ... Christ has already died and been raised, and he offers us resurrection power in this life. Everything he says in chapter 3 is a result of what God has already done. You don't have to be bound by generational curses. You don't have to be bound by the bad job your parents did if they did a bad job. You don't have to be bound by the culture we live in and just sort of give in and throw your hands up. You have resurrection power in you through the Holy Spirit to live differently. And that is what Paul is getting at here. You don't have to live into your old self. Put that away. Put it to death. Put it off. Put on the things of Christ. You are different because of what Christ has done. You are different. Parents, future parents, not yet parents, parents with kids out of the house, who you are matters. What you say matters. Especially, man, if you have kids that are grown or are leaving the house, you have incredible influence and authority as spiritual moms and dads to everyone in this church. We're so grateful for you. 
Like when your kids move out of the house, right? You're, you're not done. <laughs> when your kids are, are maybe grown and they think, well, you know, I'm not, like they're not in high school anymore, like job's not done, right? It continues, it rolls on. So how do we actually do this well, right? That was a whole lot of bad news from Paul. Don't provoke your children. How do we actually step into this well? And here's where I'm going to get a little bit practical and just offer you a little bit of like what's next and how we, how we do this space. And so if we're looking to scripture and see what not to do, I want to look at scripture and see what we do do as parents. But first we need to ask, what is our goal? We have to refocus on what our goal is. If your goal is good behaved kids at Trader Joe's, you're going to miss this. Like, if, if your goal is just a carbon copy of yourself that does everything you say when you say it, and they don't have a brain of their own, that's not the goal. That's not how we handle parenting here. Yes, yeah, so what is our goal? Our goal is to cultivate passionate Jesus followers. That's our goal. As parents, but I also hope if you are not yet a parent, that goal still applies to you and every person you encounter. Like in ourselves and in everyone that we have in our life, in our spheres of influence, we are cultivating passionate Jesus followers, specifically parents. Your goal is not good behaved kids. That is a great like side fruit of this right here. That is like definitely necessary in the life of parenting, but it's not the prime goal. Your prime goal is not like your legacy living on through your kids. Your prime goal is not making sure you kids, your kids had a better life than you did. Or making sure there's like a big nest egg at the end of the life that your kids can use to buy a house or whatever. Like none of those are the goal. The goal is to cultivate passionate Jesus followers. If then you have been raised with Christ, your prime concerns for your kids is not your legacy. It's not safety and security. It's not a better life than you had. It's not straight A's. It's cultivating passionate Jesus followers. As a parent, you are shaping and molding them into what God wants them to be and desires them to be. So where do we go with all of this? And I'm hesitant to even tackle a bit of that question. But what I do want to do is is give all of us in this room a starting point. Maybe you need a refresh reminder. Maybe you're ready to hit the reset button. Maybe you just need the encouragement to keep going. Maybe you're preparing for a future life or wondering how you can better parent in the community at large. I want to give us just a bit of a starting point here. And so here are a few ways I want to equip you to walk this kind of parenting and this kind of life out well. The first, and I'm just like, these are all speaking from like our life and the things that have been crazy effective for us, is find godly parents and ask tons of questions. When, when Sherry and I found out we were pregnant with our oldest son, Calvin, we immediately started knocking down the doors of like parents we liked and respected and started asking both of our parents a ton of questions, started asking mentors who had kids a little bit further along questions. What do you do? Why did you do that? How come you said this to him and this to her? Just everything. I'm sure they probably thought we were super annoying. We had this one uh, family uh, that we were very, very close to uh, when we were living in, in Camarillo, Evan and Shannon. They have four kids and they're all just like a few years older than this, kind of in the next stage. Like their oldest is in junior high. And so when we found out we were pregnant, we hounded them all the time. Anytime they would let us, we'd ask them questions about how their parents, we saw something in them that we liked and we wanted to emulate. And so we'd ask them a boatload of questions. And when we actually had a, had a baby in our hands and we're like, oh, what do you do with this thing? We found other people with babies that we thought were doing it well and asked them a ton of questions. 
Even within our church, there are valuable resources. Find godly parents and ask tons of questions. Second, search scripture and ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. This is a promise in scripture that if you ask for wisdom, the Lord will give it to you. Let's believe that, claim it, and as you are struggling for what to do with that kid who will not listen to you, search scriptures for wisdom. Ask the Holy Spirit. Knowing that you have the Holy Spirit inside you, ask for wisdom. Phil and Diane, one more time. I think this is the last time I'm quoting them. says, the best way to raise kids who genuinely love and follow God is to copy the way God disciplines and raises us as his children. I think if we're searching scriptures for like just the the key words, parents and children, we might come up with, with a few dozen of them. If we are searching scripture for how God grows us and disciplines us and encourages us as his children and him as a good, good father, we will find hundreds and thousands of places to go in scripture for wisdom and how to do this well. The third is to keep growing, learning, and being intentional. No matter how old you get, how old your kids get, you still have room to grow in teaching and molding and leading and shaping them towards passionately following Jesus. The, the tone and tenor of your relationship with your kids is different if you have babies. It's different if you have toddlers or teenagers. Different if they're, they're grown out of high school but still living with you, grown out of high school and living on their own. If they're married, it's different. If they have their own kids, it's different. If those kids start to have those kids, like you're, you're the kind of the, the way you relate to them changes over time, but you can never stop growing, learning, and being intentional, intentional about cultivating passionate Jesus followers. You can never do that. And the fourth... I have to offer you, maybe the hardest for us in this room, is to reset your mindset and expectations with kids. Dads or moms, if you're coming home from work, your job is not done. If we can grab a hold of that one simple truth, I think it will totally change how we parent our kids. When you come home from work, your job is not over. It's just getting started. Job number one for the day may be done, but your life calling is not done. You might be a nurse for the next five, ten years. You will be a parent to that kid forever. Your job is not done. Round two is just starting. If you're coming home tired and exhausted, worn out, me too, our job is not done. If you want some alone time, parents, it's before your kids get up and after they go to bed. or when they are old enough to to do their own thing for a little bit. Like when you walk into that house, be fully present with those kids. There's a pastor down in Texas I love. He does a ton of stuff on parenting and marriage. And he says, God designed you to go to bed tired. God designed you to go to bed tired. You come home from your demanding job in whatever startup company or hospital or whatever that you work at, you're wiped. Get ready. It's only going to get crazier. You spend the next three, four, five hours wrestling with your kids, asking about their day, engaging with them, having dinner with them, disciplining them, having timeouts, talking to, whatever. You should go to bed tired. You should go to bed tired. Man, if you're 
single, not yet married, or if you're married and you're wanting kids, this is the life you're signing up for right here. Have no bones about it. When you start having kids, you will go to bed tired. And that is the way it's supposed to be. If your expectation is that you walk into a peaceful home with dinner already set out on the table, like house clean, kids washed up, like waiting for you to, to talk with them or whatever, waiting for you to just sit and snuggle them. I've been waiting for snuggles all day, Dad. No, chances are they like you come home to a tornado, right, and fighting kids and, and someone's being disciplined and dinner is not even close to being ready. If you're coming home from work, reset those expectations. Don't expect perfection of the spouse that is staying home and, and helping with the kids. Like, know that you're coming in ready to take the tag and you're serving. I think we have this mindset that we moms and dads come home and, and everything is just so, and, and chances are it's, it's more like chaos all the time. And your job as a parent who's coming home from work is to enter the chaos. Enjoy it and go to bed tired. How you walk into that environment changes everything. If you walk in with an expectation of perfection, or even not perfection, but your version of a house or your version of life, your toast. So prepare your mind and your spirit by going, my job is to come in and shape, mold, discipline, love. Cultivate passionate Jesus followers in the nitty-grittiness of every single day. I also have another, I, I was, I kind of, I don't know if you know that much about Anthem. We do a lot of collaboration as we, as we prepare teaching. And so I was chatting with Kevin, who's lead pastor of Anthem Camarillo, and, and we were talking about this. And, and one of our, like, biggest burdens for our church uh, that kind of came up as we were just talking through teaching this, um, don't resent your kids for the stage of life you're in. So we have a three-and-a-half-year-old, a two-year-old, and a almost one-year-old, like an 11-month-old, like we don't get to do a lot of the things we want to do. I am at my worst when I'm resenting my kids for that. Zach and Brooke just had a little infant. Their life radically changed when there's a baby on the scene. They don't get to do everything they want to do anymore. Kevin and Vanessa have six kids and 14 grandkids. They don't get to do everything they want to do anymore because the size of their family is massive. Imagine the, the Christmas present list on that one. Don't resent your kids for the stage of life you are in. Own it, be present in it, and ask for joy in it. Not, not ask for happiness, ask for joy in it. A joy that prevails through life's troubles and life's trials. Ask for joy in that season. Whatever it is, if you're up all night with a baby who's crying and will not sleep, ask the Lord for joy in that. If you're potty training, good Lord, ask him for joy in that. If you've got bratty teenagers, ask the Lord for joy in it. Ask for joy. And know that next to your marriage, which we've already established is the foundation for parenting. Next to your marriage, parenting is the most important thing you will do. It is more important than your job. It's more important than your career. It's more important than whatever hobbies you have on the side. This is it. Ask him for joy. 
You're going to have to say no to a lot of things you want to do. But it can be the most life-giving, joyful thing if we partner with the Holy Spirit, search scriptures for wisdom, ask godly parents, bug them about it, keep growing, learning, being good students of our children, and speaking life and blessing into them. There's something about fulfilling this ancient creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. There's something about it. It's the first command God ever gave, be fruitful and multiply. Families are not a byproduct of the fall and sinfulness. They're a byproduct of a good God-ordained order of things. This is how creation thrives when families are doing well, when families are trusting in Jesus together, when dads are humble and repentant to their kids, when kids are learning to love and obey their parents and love and obey Jesus. There's something about that. And the Lord invites parents to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He wants us to show them what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus and raise them up to do the same. And Jesus can be displayed or distorted by how we occupy our roles as parents and children. So your job as a parent and a child is to reflect Jesus to your kids and your parents. You act towards them as a person filled by the Spirit, working to represent Jesus to them through the role and responsibility that you occupy, whatever that is. There's only one perfect father, right? And there's only one perfect son. This Father, God, and the Lord Jesus. Everybody else will get it wrong at times. I don't know about you, I find that tremendously comforting. There's only one perfect father and one perfect son. There's only one perfect father-son relationship. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. We all make mistakes. No mom and dad will ever look back and say, we nailed it 100% of the time. Already, if you have kids, there's probably things you wish you would have done differently. That's okay. But the call is to be consistent with our kids to be authentic with them, not to be perfect, to speak life and blessing into them as they are growing, to call out those good God things we see in them and correct them, train them, teach them as they're learning and growing and what it looks like to walk with Jesus. No one else on the planet has the gift of parenting your kids. As a church community, we all get to be a support structure and help and and enjoy that, but nobody else has the gift of parenting your kids but you guys. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be your child's parents. And so no matter what season of life you're in, if you're single, you're dating, you're married, you don't have kids yet, you maybe can't have kids, maybe you've already had kids and they're out of the house To everyone, I want to ask the same question. What are you cultivating in your life and and the people around you? What are you cultivating? What are are you cultivating in your heart, in your life, in regards to the grace of God that is going to lead you to be more sanctified versions of yourself than you are now? How are you preparing yourself to be a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent? How are you preparing yourself to obey 
Jesus in whatever season of life you are in.